Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. This is Arielle, and she's actually joining us from Vermilion, Alberta, Canada. And she's been married for nine years, and they are, she and her husband are actually expecting their first baby in, did you say August? Mm-hmm. Okay, August. I just like had March in my head, but then I'm like, no, that's your ultrasound. <laughs> so they're expecting their first baby. So congratulations. So Arielle was actually diagnosed with ocular melanoma in November of 2018. And so we're just going to talk a little bit about her story. Arielle, can you share just like kind of like what was, what was the beginning of your diagnosis like? What led to your diagnosis? Yeah, I just got back from a trip and right before that trip, I was kind of noticing my visual acuity was really good, but I was just getting sort of, it was almost like when you stand up and your vision gets lights in it almost because of high blood pressure, blood pressure, just things like that. And I was having trouble. I started really focusing on it, but I was having trouble like looking at high texture surfaces. So like a brick crosswalk with a pattern or like all the weird carpets in the airport. Like when I was going on that trip, that was kind of what my problem was. And so I went to the optometrist shortly, like a few days after trip. So when you went to the optometrist, what kinds of tests do you remember them doing? I know it's, it's probably been a while. It's been like almost four years, but like, do you remember what they did? I was overdue for an eye exam at that time. I hadn't gone in a few years, but again, I was that that person or whatever that my vision is so good I don't need glasses kind of thing and just kind of never made time for it and kept putting it off and historically I'm really not like that so I don't know why I was doing that but um yeah they did all the vision tests they did like a wide angle lens photo of my eyes they have quite a good comprehensive assessment at that clinic I was going to so I did like all the tests and they were like yeah no, you don't need glasses we're not really sure why you're having these symptoms. They did like a colorblindness test for me, like all kinds of things. And I was just like, okay, cool. I'm good. Like, let me out of here kind of thing. Cause I just wanted to leave. I know. Um, and those eye appointments always take forever. It's like, okay, am I done yet? Well, actually that was like a fast one. Cause it's just like a clinic close by and it was like easy, whatever. But they were like, oh, we just have to look at these pictures. Then you can leave. And it's like, well, if everything's like, if I can see you, why would there be anything wrong kind of thing? Um, And then when they opened up the picture of my right eye, they were like, oh, there's something. I'm like, what are we looking at? Because I'm a nurse, so I kind of understand things. But with an eye, I'm like, what are we looking at? Um, And you could just see a big green kind of bump in the bottom of the screen. And they kind of, he kind of identified like, this is either fluid or a mass or something. And so right away I was like, okay, well, I'll just go on a diuretic or what what are we going to do? And it was, I needed a referral and that was the Friday going into a long weekend. And so I was referred immediately and had an appointment in the city on the Tuesday, like the first day that clinic was back open. That's crazy. Honestly, like this is giving me deja vu because I mean, I didn't have some of the same symptoms, but I had the the same experience with going to the optometrist on a Friday and having to wait until a Tuesday to even like see the specialist they needed me to see. So it was a little crazy. Okay. So once you saw the specialist on this Tuesday following, what, you know, what happened there? I'm, I'm kind of assuming they did some further testing. Um, yeah. I was very unprepared. They just were like, come. And I remember being like, I wonder what's going to happen. Like, 
will I, should I take an overnight bag? Like, am I going to have surgery or what's happening? Cause I did not know. And it sounds like the optometrist didn't know for sure what was going on. Well, at the optometrist, I asked, is that fluid or what are we doing? And he said, well, I'm concerned. I can see like some vascular like stuff going on. So that makes me think it's not fluid. So then I just kind of looked at him and was like, so it's a tumor. And he was like, I'm not stupid. Yeah. He's just like, uh, like I can't diagnose anything. It's not fair for me to say anything because I don't have the proper assessment tools. And I was like, you know what? That's fair. I get it. And the poor guy, um, it was the first time I'd ever seen him personally. So I was like kind of giving him the gears, like what's going on. Um, and he didn't even know me. Uh, so I had an idea of that over the weekend and instantly you're like, cancer, right? But you're a nurse and you've never heard of eye cancer. And you're like, well, how is this a possibility if I've never heard of it? So I was very kind of went into that appointment blind. Like they were all of a sudden coming at me with that pen to like take my eye pressure. And I was like, well, what are you doing? Like I, I would have my eye pressure taken like that. They did an angiography. I had to have an IV. They took pictures with the contrast eye to see how the blood was moving through those the vascular area in the eye and that was fine I mean I just was very confused because it was like in in and out um and then I saw a student kind of fellow doctor and he started asking me lots about melanoma and skin cancer history and I was just like oh god and then all of a sudden we need to do an ultrasound on your eye which obviously I'd never had and then that day they basically like I knew something serious was going on because of all the tests and just like the invasiveness I guess of the test like it's not like they were so invasive but they were at the same time um from a medical background so that day I saw a doctor and he was like I'm pretty sure you have ocular melanoma oh my goodness okay so when he told you that you had ocular melanoma did he explain at all what that meant um or were you still just kind of like okay I have this I still didn't even think this was possible and then you just kind of carried on to the next doctor I had like a really huge emotional response, like just out of the optometrist office, like in Lloydminster. So I was like initially very shook up by it. Like I remember I phoned my mom and I was crying and then I heard this like noise and it was like so animalistic this noise. Like it was like a cry out. And then I realized it was me. I like did not understand. Like I didn't know that I was doing that, but I was like trying to cry and scream at the same time. It was wild. I was just like, what is that? And I realized it was me. So I was like super emotional all that whole weekend leading up to that appointment. That guy, that doctor was like, we think you have melanoma in your eye. So to me, it was not that initial, you have cancer. The word melanoma felt more safe to me, which it doesn't matter. It's not. It's just as serious. But he did not really get into it because he's not the guy. He, I had had no scans. They had no for sure thing. It was like, this is what we think. We're sending you to the guy that's going to deal with you. So once you were diagnosed and you kind of moved on through this initial like moment of being diagnosed, were you sent to an ocular oncology team to talk about treatment options? So in Alberta, there is only one guy. His name is Dr. Weiss. And me and my husband always say he's the best thing that ever happened to me when it came to getting cancer. Like he's just an absolute awesome doctor. He's so great. So yeah, I saw him. We have an eye institute at the Royal Alex. So we're super fortunate to have that and that's only two hours from me so he comes down from Calgary a couple times a month so yes I saw him he told me I'm 95% sure this is what it is you need I want to say it was an MRI to confirm and 
I was booked for surgery then. He told me my options. He's like, you can do a nucleation or you can do your brachytherapy. He explained those to me and I chose right then and there before I even did my MRI. So which option did you end up choosing to have done? I went with brachytherapy because I wanted to keep my eye if it was at all possible. I don't want to say it was less invasive because it was terrible, but yeah, that was what I ended up going with. Do you mind me asking if you remember like how, how large roughly was your tumor? Like how wide, how thick? I want to say like 11.8 by six or it was something big. Like it was just over the cusp of being like medium. So it was a large tumor. It was like on the low end of large or the small end of large. Yes. Yes. And so, and to the location was kind of odd. Like it's right at the very bottom of my eye. We understand each other. Like my eye, it's literally like in the bottom inner corner, like right down under here where nobody could find it until it got big enough to be like, boom. So it was a less common location too. So I just don't go there to think about, oh, I wonder if they could have seen it when I was due for my exam two years before. I don't ever do that because I just know it's not fair to myself to even think about that. Yeah, funny location. And they did say like, the thing that really made me choose Bracky was I got to keep my eye and both were like, I think 95 or 97% success rate. It kind of seemed like if you get to keep your own eye, like you may as well. And so what was that like the treatment like for you for brachytherapy? Like, was it, uh, how many days was it? What was like, you mentioned that it was, it was a less invasive experience, but also like invasive. I can relate. Did you like, what did you do that, that duration of the treatment? I actually fell pregnant right at the same time that I was diagnosed with cancer. And that was like a whoops. And I was like, oh gosh. So I was ultimately very stressed that I was going to lose my surgery, but just, it was so odd the way it worked out. The location of the tumor being on the bottom of my eye, the amount of radiation, there was literally zero radiation that would affect the baby. So I was very early, like first trimester. And I chose to do that surgery because my mentality was if I'm not okay, how is a baby okay? Like you need a mom to have a baby. It's just, that was what me and my husband decided. So that brachytherapy was horrendous for me. So I had the one on a Monday and I was literally sent home on Tylenol. Like piece of metal with radiation to your eye and go home on Tylenol, which I would say that was probably a big pitfall in my care because I did end up in eMERGE two, three days later because I was like vomiting and ill just in so much pain. Yeah, for sure. That was a rough week for me. Like, cause I, I kind of, I thought it would be bad, but he was like, you know, if you feel well enough to drive, go for that. But I sat in a room in the dark holding my head. <laughs> yeah. So I had the plaque put on on a Monday. Oh my goodness. It, and it feels like it, I mean, that week, it definitely goes by a lot slower in some ways and a lot, a lot faster in others. But I do think that, like you said, that that was, that was something that could be remedied in, in the future for that, for that doctor um, who did your surgery to just not just assume that everybody's pain tolerance is going to be high enough to just go with Tylenol <laughs> because well, some people are totally fine and others, they need, they need more. And I get like with being pregnant, I want you to have the safest and least drugs possible. Yeah, um, and to like, I honestly, it was days before my surgery that I was confirmed pregnant. It was a big deal. He was talking to multiple rads and radiation doctors to figure out if this was even okay. It was all shotgun kind of like yeah, whatever. I'm sure that was um, just a ton of extra, extra emotions to layer. It was so much stress. But I mean, I still, I guess that's a unique 
layered to my experience all in all like I feel like I did get good care like my surgery was like textbook and I've had really excellent outcomes from it so what is your vision in that eye like now and I guess maybe just to to kind of piggyback on that like what was your recovery like after the brachytherapy was done did you feel like you know it was instantly it was better and, and you could just see the same or did it take some time to recover I had zero vision problems like my visual acuity was amazing I was better than 2020 vision so Um, instantly I had vision issues big on sensitivity to light because two you're taking those eye drops that are dilating your eye for so long all the eye drops and things so yeah my vision was definitely affected um I was off work for probably four or five months that recovery was hard for me both mentally and physically it was just like I couldn't get a handle on things like and it was winter so my final surgery to get that plaque out was couple days before Christmas which was extremely difficult for me because you're emotional you're on a biopsy result if you're getting one you think you're dying it's Christmas everyone's having a good time you're like I can't drive everything is crazy (laughs) yes so I was 29 super independent like my husband was off for all during surgery but I remember he went back to work right before my family Christmas and I drove there and then I couldn't get back because my eye was just drooping and tired and I was like what's going on like Um, and I remember crying all the way back home and my dad was driving me home and he was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I just can't deal with this. This is so brutal. Um, just all the changes you're going through. Right. So it's very rapid, like it's a very rapid amount of changes. From the time that I was diagnosed to surgery, I think it was maybe three weeks, like maybe. And then I found out I was pregnant in there too. (laughs) And you're trying to get off work and you're trying to organize everything so um it was just like everything was going way too fast is kind of like probably why I couldn't mentally like get a grasp on anything um and then too it was like I've always been really active and I remember I was so taken aback because like I said before we started I have a dog that is super active and I remember walking to the end of my block and being like "Ooh, I I can't keep going like this is it and I just remember thinking like how is this happening to me? Like, why, why am I 29? And like, I had eye surgery, like, it's not that big of a deal. So it was like a huge learning point, I guess, for me to realize just like how much of an effect cancer has on you. And then too, like, I'm pregnant now again, and I know how tired I am. So it's like, that obviously played into it. But yeah, it was a wild recovery, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Um, No, I can, I can understand that. And I think most of us, most of us understand that too. And um, just from the the perspective that when you are diagnosed and you're told like, okay, you have cancer in your eye, it's very localized. I mean, they don't initially tell you all of the risks and the scary things later, (laughs) but initially it's like to treat this, we only have to treat your eye and, and yes, it's not fun. And you know, it can be, it can look like this. It can look like this, but then you go through it and they, they kind of, I, I think, I mean, to their credit, I think they're just trying to kind of boost us up and like help us feel like, okay, you can do this. But I don't think any of us really fully realize until we go through it, just how, how much everyday life is affected by your sight and by your ability to see the same way that you saw before surgery, before your treatment, whether you have, you know, just slight vision loss, complete vision loss, because you either just go blind from the radiation or because, um, you have the eye enucleated, like there's, there's so much adjusting, like 
just physical adjusting that happens that is exhausting. Not to mention just the fact that any cancer diagnosis is just traumatic and physically exhausting. So there's just a lot. And I think too, like I remember times when I said to my husband, I remember crying. I wish I would have just let them take my eye. Like I don't want to keep going to these appointments. I don't want to keep getting these injections. Like uh, this is just, it, it, it is so taxing on you when you're young and you're, and not that it isn't for older people, but when you're trying to work, you're trying to live your life and be normal. And it's not even like, I, I just want them to think I'm normal. It's like, I just want my life back. And so when you are constantly having to take a half a day off work to go and get your injected, because those, those appointments are not 10 minutes, they are four hours and that's, people don't get that. And then add four hours of driving on either side. And I mean, for me, things have gone pretty good. Like I've, I've been getting Avastin injections up until I got my last one in October. But I would say too, like for anyone who's going through any of this during COVID, it's a huge additional stressor. Like I got so stressed during COVID, scared that my doctor would get COVID, scared that I would get COVID, scared that I wouldn't get injections. It was so, so extremely stressful for me. And two with COVID. So I just talked about how hard it was for me to, my work is so great. So it's not like, oh my gosh, we can't give you the time. Just like, I felt like I was letting, I was like not filling my role. I wasn't letting anyone down. I wasn't filling my role is what I felt like. So then during COVID, oh, well, you actually have to do two appointments a month because we can't do everything all in one day. You're so that like, uh, Yeah. So I had to go to the city twice. So like one day it would be like, we'll do everything plus your ultrasound. The next day they always, or the next week or two weeks later, they always want to do like all the pictures and dilation. Then you can see the doctor. So that was extremely difficult for me. And like, I was pissed off. I was mad. Yeah, for sure. Like, so one of the things that kind of struck me, like when, when I had seen some of the things about your story and what you shared in the social media kind of synopsis for people to read before they even kind of got into this is you're just, you're describing all of these things where you just kind of lose control, right? You lose the control of this mm-hmm. because there's just really as, as you're initially diagnosed, as you go through treatment, there's a lot of things that are outside of your control. Circumstances that happen, like just the diagnosis itself where you don't expect it to happen and then it does and you can't stop it. It just kind of is what it is and you have to learn how to live with it. So I know like you've obviously been through so many different ups and downs. How have you kind of helped yourself get to that place where you could recognize, okay, I can't control this, but what, you know, what can you control? I would say from the very beginning, I knew I couldn't control what was happening, but I could control my own voice. Like I had a voice. I asked for things. I could you know, try things like, and I don't mean try treatments. I was absolutely like, my doctor is so smart. He knows everything. He's so great. Like I just put my life in his hands and trust him. But I mean, in the fact of like, okay, I'm phoning the CCI to see if I can get a counselor. And the thing that's unique about this cancer too is, okay, you're diagnosed and you're getting surgery in three weeks. That's not always how it goes. Um, More times than not, people have a really long ongoing treatment where for me, it was like, bang, bang, you're done. And I couldn't get a grasp on things. And so I remember phoning them and them saying, like, we can get you in now at this time. And I said, okay, like, I understand that. But like, this is when my surgery is and I got diagnosed on this day. And they didn't even, they couldn't figure out like how it was so fast. And I remember getting off the phone and then being like, no, I gotta phone them back. Like, I gotta do something else. So I phoned back and I said, like, is there anyone you can give me? And they said, we can give you a spiritual counselor. And I was like, okay. So I literally had to explain to them again and ask them again, like, this is what I need. I needed to tell them what I needed. Um, 
So I guess just like being an advocate for your own self gives you a little bit of a sense of control of like, you're learning, you're trying to get people to understand you're making your like voice be heard. And like, I was definitely like, okay, like if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. But I phoned back and asked again and lo and behold, Hey, we do have another alternative. Here's what we can do for you. Just kind of like looking for those possibilities, even, even though you're facing something that feels insurmountable. Yeah. And I also chose to like do a lot of, um, like therapy and like very like immediately, like with like a psychologist, like journaling was really helpful for me. And also I have done like multiple like courses through like the cross cancer Institute. That's that acronym I was using CCI. That's what we deal with like in Alberta and they have really great like mental health resources, all kinds of resources. But again, a lot of them didn't apply to me because they're like, Oh, you can come to this, this, and this. I'm like, no, I live two hours away and I got surgery already and I'm done with this kind of cancer. You have like this really expedited treatment, which like feels like I'm so lucky. I shouldn't feel so bad because there's so many people that have this ongoing going on, but then becomes ongoing. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. And well, and it's tricky because, and I feel like I've talked to so many patients who feel like this, like initially you get diagnosed and just depending, I mean, everybody's diagnosis looks a little bit different. So like you said, some people, it might be just a a matter of weeks, maybe less than a month. Um, Other people, it might be kind of dragged out over the course of a few different months because they're watching like what they think might be a tumor, but it's still too small and they're just not sure. Um, Like everyone's experience is different, but but the one thing that I feel like almost everyone has in common is from the time that you get diagnosed to the time that you actually have the surgery, you know, as long as there's no hiccups in the scheduling, it's usually pretty fast. And as far as the trauma of that goes, like just emotionally, mentally, the trauma of that, like you don't even have time to sit with it because you're, it's like a whirlwind of appointments. You're kind of just getting through surviving until that point. And then suddenly like you have time and space to feel it later. And it just kind of like builds up and hits you. And I feel like that can be kind of surprising sometimes because you kind of think, well, I already had my surgery. Like my vision is fine. Maybe your biopsy came back really great. Like I should be fine, but really like you went through something really traumatic and that's, that's okay to not be fine. And I think that we just, as patients, like we just have to give ourselves the grace to have that journey kind of roller coaster throughout the multiple years. Because like you said, this is a long-term thing. Like this is, this is not just a, oh, you had your eye surgery. This is all the treatments later. This is the Avastin shots. If you're getting those, this is all of the monitoring of the tumor. This is the monitoring of the rest of your body. Like, and this is multiple, like multiple years. Like I feel like for the most part, most doctors seem to say like, you're going to see me for like 10 years. Like it's a very long time. And just like the reality of that and accepting that reality is it's a process. It is (laughs) kind of an ongoing one too. I remember being like, they're like, you might need injections maybe once every three or four months or like a year and a half. And I remember being like calculating and like, okay, that's this many injections. Like I can do it. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, your eye is bleeding more. We need to do monthly injections. And I'm like, okay, no, this was not what I was explaining. This is not meeting my expectations. And I had a really hard time adjusting to that because I'm a planner and I'm organized. I'm like, okay. But then I realized like I am at the mercy of this system or disease or COVID or whatever was affecting me at the time. And it's like, you only have control of like your appointments and doing your eye drops. If you're supposed to be doing eye drops and like doing the treatment, that's, that's your choice. So yeah. do you want to play well, the game and, or do you and ultimately, and, right? and ultimately like you can choose how to respond. Um, you know, we get news, we get loss of expectations and then, you know, 
I mean, you have to feel the feelings. You have to feel the frustration that it changed, you know, whether it's that it changed from the get-go because obviously cancer, not in the plans for anyone. But once you kind of like accept that and feel that, then it's like, okay, so then like, what, what am I going to do with this? And I think I'm trying to remember, I think it was your post where you said something about how like, okay, like I've got all these lemonades or lemons, I'm going to make lemonade. Yeah, that was my initial post because I rem- I live in a small town, like 5,000 people and people talk mostly because they care, sometimes just because they're like, yeah, I heard this and it gets so turned around and twisted. And I was like, I am not playing this game. You want to talk about me? Here's the, here's the information and get it right. Um, and I actually put in that post, like replace talking about me with coming up to me, like giving me well wishes or like asking me if there's something you can do to help me. Like I asked for what I needed right away. Um, and when someone was doing something that didn't work for me, like they were trying to help me in a way that helped them. I told them, mm-hmm. no, I don't need that. Like, or like, thank you, but this is actually what I need. Um, and yeah, so I kind of got onto that coining that phrase of make lemonade just because I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like the only thing I have to do is like my choices of going to appointments and getting them done and you know, your attitude about it, so to speak. Um, so that's kind of how I equated it. Oh, I think that's great. Um, and I think that's really important to just, to just recognize too, like that you have control over communication. Like you said at the beginning of this, like you were in control of your voice and how you utilized your voice to communicate, to ask for what you needed, um, both from doctors and also from people in your life. Um, I think that can be one of the things that can be tricky is like when you have a cancer diagnosis, it really can affect relationships with people. Um, Mm -hmm. because people kind of like, especially at first and when you're kind of in the midst of your treatment, um, I think that they, they're like, Oh my goodness, like, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. And they want to help. They want to help. They want to help. But getting clear on, you know, learning it's, it's really, it's a learning process, but just learning what actually does help you and what isn't helpful. And then sharing that, you know, just honestly, without, without the need to feel stressed or worried that you're going to somehow offend someone and just communicate that because, you know, you owe that to yourself. You deserve that as a person. Um, so you mentioned kind of just sharing that, uh, that perspective or what you were feeling or noticing with people from like where you live. Um, what about like maybe your familial relationships or your, your relationship with your husband? Um, how did this diagnosis kind of affect how you valued those relationships and, and continued, uh, fostering them? Or, you know, did you ever have any negative responses from family, um, or close friends that you just were kind of, you know, surprised by? I think everyone has been like, it's, it's funny because I think when you get into situations like this, some people do not surprise you at all in the way that they show up for you. Sometimes you're surprised by, wow, this person, I don't have that much to do with them, but they've really showed up for me and they are making all the difference. And then sadly, a lot of time people work don't necessarily know how to handle this and they have a different way of coping than we do. And that might be leaving, that might be shutting down, that might be sending you funny pictures that you're like, I don't understand because I'm messed up right now and you are not helping. (laughs) That never really happened to me, like that exact example. But I feel like things like that happen to people and they're just like, I'm so disconnected from you. I don't understand. My husband and I have always had a really good relationship by saying like things have been easy for us because we've been through hard things, but our relationship has always been pretty easy. Um, And he you know, showed up, stepped up, did all the things, supported me, like made it work, extra back and forth through work. Like his work was amazing too. 
Um, so I was super lucky um, with just my ability to like have him home, spend time with me and like just, and I mean, like he was working 16 hour days, then he was driving two hours home. <laughs> and oh so goodness. was I like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to see you because I'm not alone anymore with my own thoughts. Um, yeah, but also I was like, are you sure you can drive? Like you seem like you should probably be really tired. So yeah, like I was super fortunate. I mean, like I did have people in my life that I feel like the way I coped was by leaving. Like it was like, oh, I'm going to work and I'm not going to phone you. I'm going to the bush to work. I'm not. And you're like, oh, okay. My mom and sisters are, have, were so good, like with showing up and helping. And, but I too had to like navigate it myself because people do not get it. And I think that's like the biggest thing I got out of getting in touch with other people who are cancer survivors or in treatment or just like people with cancer is like people do not understand who have not been through it all. Um, and one thing that like really stuck with me that I learned is you can't expect everyone in your life to be what you expect them to be or to be everything. My mom, for example, I can't expect her to be my cheerleader be my person that understands what it's like to have cancer, take me to the appointments, make me food, do like all these things because she just doesn't have that capacity. So I find it interesting that we often think someone really big in our lives, like a parent or a sibling or a spouse to be able to do all those things. And that just isn't, they just don't have the capacity for it, whether we like oh, it or that's not. A good point. Yeah. Like, like our, our, our capacity as humans, if we can't handle doing it all ourselves, what makes us think that they could either as caregivers or as family members who are super close, like a mom, a, a dad, a sibling, um, it's, and I it's think traumatic that for them too. It just comes from experience, right? Because like my mom is such a, a doer and a, I can help with this and I can do this. And, and she, she does it all. Man. But then this was one thing that I was like, she, she just, she's never had cancer and you cannot blame her or be like well she just doesn't get it and so I had to figure that out and figure out how to support myself or find support through that yeah so you mentioned just finding support through other people who also have mm -hmm. this cancer so what have been some of the ways that you have found you know other other ocular melanoma friends so what what I would like sort of I've found people with ocular melanoma but what I would sort of like reframe is is I focused way too much on the fact that I had this rare cancer and I was young. It was really freaking hard. I needed to stop looking through like a spotlight and open up to more of a floodlight of you're a young cancer survivor. It helped me um, to literally connect with other just young people, period, that had had cancer. It doesn't have to be ocular melanoma. And that was one thing I learned probably, I'd say, a year and a half ago only. So I felt like so lonely for like a year and a half because this is such a rare cancer and it was so like, you go to the clinic and everyone is like old, <laughs> they're walkers and you're like, are you kidding me? Um, so there just was no one young and it's just that rare thing that you're like, I'm a rarity, I'm young, this is so hard. And I think I focused on that way too much. So um, I actually connected with um, the CCI and I remember taking a course on cancer and stress management and I was of course the youngest person everyone else was like I'm retired or I'm trying to go back to work but I might just retire early and I remember thinking like oh this is the worst but then I stuck it out and I think that was like 12 weeks and I like connected with these little people I was just like 
we're all going through like it was so weird for me to be so young and be like oh old so-and-so you know and you they said things that made sense to me um I did feel a little bit disconnected in a way where it was like I was working full-time at the time I was it's like I want to start a family I want to have kids or and that's just not a possibility for this period waiting so that was hard um one thing that I would like I want to like kind of boost up or let people know about is there is a program and it's called a fresh chapter. So I connected with them, did the interview process and got to take like a 10 week Ignite program with them. And it was all virtual. It was like such a phenomenal experience. And I actually work with them now um, as an alumni and I interview people who are applying. And I do have hopes of like when my life maybe settles out with baby and stuff to like have more of a role with them. Um, possibly in the future but like it was just connecting with other people and it was there was so many young people it was just so good for me and I have been in contact with those people via social media things like that and it's been like so great well I think that's awesome just to recognize Mm -hmm. like finding support for yourself has looked different than like for you than maybe it has for me or for other you know for someone else I think that that's that's just an important distinction to make is that just because I don't know. I'm just going to throw out a random name. This is nobody's name in particular, but just because Susie who has ocular melanoma and was maybe 35 when she was diagnosed, just because she found a lot of community in online support groups or a text thread or directly meeting up with other ocular melanoma patients doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with you. If you don't find community or find support for yourself in other ways, like if you find, or in, you know, in those ways, if you don't find support in those ways and you find it differently, Um, because I think that, like you said, like it can help a lot, even just to talk to people who have cancer period, it doesn't matter what kind of cancer, because there's so many, I mean, yes, there's some distinctions with ocular melanoma to deal with, you know, that maybe other people who have a different cancer don't deal with the same way, but a lot of the emotions, a lot of the, um, just the, the weight of carrying the diagnosis is very similar. And, um, and, and I almost think that sometimes it can, it can be helpful to get outside that box and to talk with other people because they have a different perspective and they can, they can kind of, like you said, widen that lens so that you can Mm -hmm. see a little bit more widely what this experience can be like for you. And, and I'm, I'm the kind of person that like, I, I feel like I also really thrive in hard situations myself when I can look at someone else's hard situation, see myself in it a little bit or a lot, but then also recognize like, okay, if they have gone through this hard thing and they have conquered it and come out on top and they're still here, then again, why can't I do that too? Like, why not? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is just so critical to like recognize that your way as a patient of being supported and, and finding that support, like, yes, we want, we want spousal support or a partner. We want our family to support us. But, but at the end of the day, like we have to find those support systems for ourselves that actually make sense and with people who get it. And so that is, that's obviously something that we try to link patients up and just kind of as a, by the way, on Facebook, we do have, I don't know if you're on Facebook and you're in this group, but we do have a living with ocular melanoma in your twenties, thirties, and forties group that is strictly uh, created by a couple of the, the people who are, I want to say it's a cure insight kind of helped to kind of create that Facebook group, but that is very specifically for our younger generations. Um, anyone is welcome to join that just put that out there. Um, I will include the link in there or for that group. Um, 
in the show notes and also in the comments once we're done with the live stream. I yeah, please. Do that's amazing. So I'm going to ask you for the link for the fresh chapter information so that we can share that because that sounds like just a, a good personal growth opportunity. Um, oh man, there's just so much learning. Like I can't even, like you just work through so much, so much learning, so much connection. It's unlike any other program I've ever uh, been a part of. And two, it, it brought to me a little bit more of an awareness of, I remember thinking things were so hard and they were hard, but just thinking like, this sucks that I, you know, can't have kids right now or whatever. And then it was very um, eye-opening and insightful for me to speak to people. Like a lot of the younger gals that were in my group were like, I've had a complete hysterectomy and I can never have kids. I'm like, okay. So it's not comparative suffering saying, Hey, your, your story's worse than mine. It's just a perspective shift for me. And again, I feel like I was so focused on my own details, my own life. I didn't say that. Like I was like, I have this rare cancer. I can't have kids right now. This is really hard. And my vision is causing problems. Um, but just being a little bit more aware of other people's situations around you, it was huge for me. Oh, it is definitely a big one. But I think that again, that like that, that tunnel vision, like of just only seeing our own diagnosis and only seeing not even just our own diagnosis. Sometimes I think it's sometimes it's sometimes it's even just having that tunnel vision of our unique experience. And I think that when we can, I mean, I feel like it's, it's this tricky balance between honoring the space that you need to feel your own, feel your own feelings because we do need to go through that tunnel. (laughs) Um, But recognizing once you get out of that tunnel, there's so much more. And there's so much community. There's so much growth that can happen as a person. There's so much connectedness that you can find in community of, you know, people who have gone through difficult, hard things. And there's a lot of perspective to be gained from just recognizing that someone else has done something hard too, or maybe a different, a different brand of hard, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with like focusing on yourself, because I think that was just part of my journey that I needed to go through and I don't think I'd be where I was if I didn't have that whole like introspective depressive time of me 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 that's just part of my story and my process and I'm so grateful to have just come out on the other side of that and that's one thing I like love doing these podcasts and interviews is to just like tell people like it'll get better like I remember talking to people and just thinking like this is shit like I don't know how this is ever gonna like how is time ever gonna move forward and how will I ever have anything going on in my life but it does it gets better it does um it does over time for sure so I guess just to kind of wrap up a little bit as we get to the end of our interview one thing I forgot to ask you was did you have a biopsy done and if so um, you are welcome to share those results if you're comfortable yeah so I had this I had a biopsy done just because I think like I'm just a planner and I just, I'm like, I need to kind of know I'm a, I'm a stats person. I need to know what's going on in that regard. And so I did a biopsy um, and I ended up coming back one a, so super fortunate and just, you know, that helped me. And it also like gave me the peace of mind of like, okay, I want to know that I'm getting the right kind of annual or semi-annual or quarterly screening. Right. For me, yeah, for sure. I, can, I can roll a dice on things, more easily when I know more. Now more information can definitely feel helpful. Um, well, I am glad that that was your circumstance. Cause I feel like that is, that's like the best case scenario, especially for something, you know, a tumor the size that you had has this diagnosis 
helped you put more thought into your future goals as a person? Um, and to kind of piggyback off that, like how has, how has this diagnosis affected just your, your pregnancy journey, even just right now? Um, I would say basically having cancer changes your life. Essentially everyone who's had it probably has gone through that. Um, I've definitely chosen to focus on different things than I used to focus on different outlooks, but I do think that's part of just getting older, but I just don't know that I'd be as wise or as old as I am now if it weren't for cancer. So yeah, it's it's definitely changed my life 100%. And I, I wouldn't say I've planned my life differently. Um, it's just sort of allowed me to sift through things a little bit more intentionally. So um, it, it just you know what's more important to you and you know what you're willing to let go of or put more into. The trajectory of what I'm involved in has been been completely different since cancer like I've gotten involved in several like interviews and doing podcasts and I've been in touch via social media with other people with ocular melanoma all over the world and like I feel like they've literally told me you messaging me telling me stuff has helped me so much so I don't want to say I've taken on a leadership role but I've I've been a helper and I have um, supported other people and that's so important to me in regards to like my pregnancy journey and stuff for a long time I just like thought I was gonna die all the time um, but eventually for me, I, you know, like I have anxiety now, like I, I was maybe somewhat of an anxious person before, but after you have cancer for me, I'm just anxious. So I did tons of work with that and I take a medication and I'm good. Um, and you know what, this pregnancy has been such a awesome time in my life for me. I have not, you know, been concerned or worried about any of that stuff. And I'm just like, really feeling very fortunate and happy and just excited. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, I think that's great. And I'm glad that everything is going well so far with your pregnancy. And I hope that the ultrasound coming up in March get to like see all the fun things. It is definitely, it's a life-changing experience, but I think that when you can get to a place where you recognize like it doesn't have to define your whole life, it doesn't have to define everything about, I mean, yes, it affects your life, but it hasn't, it doesn't have to define it. And I think that that's kind of when, when you can make that distinction and when you can kind of cultivate that more regularly, because I think that we all have triggers, right? Maybe every time we go to the eye doctor or when we have scans, like there's going to be things that come up and kind of bring everything to the surface again, where it feels a little bit more like this is defining my life right now. And that can, that can kind of bring up all those old feelings. But I think when we can get to that place where we more frequently live in a space where we're not defined by our diagnosis, that that feels better, right? It feels better. It feels like, like you said, more intentional. We're able to live life on our terms. And uh, that's, that's if anything, I mean, if that's the only gift that I got out of this to just have that desire to live more intentionally and to really not just, not just have the desire, but to act on it, then I, I will take that. Like I will see that as a, as my gift. Um, because that I think makes a huge difference in just overall, overall happiness, overall life satisfaction, all of those things that like, if tomorrow I got in a car accident, like I feel like I would feel, I would feel like I had done, I had done the best that I could with being present, you know, up to that point, mm-hmm. because there's just, there's so much uncertainty. And I think you mentioned this in your post, but like just leaning into the uncertain pieces and the unknown and just recognizing like, okay, like this is, this is my life now. Like, well, I guess I'm going to roll with it. Like, yeah. Cause I don't have funny, another choice. The funny thing about it all is, is like, 
the only certainty in life is that life is uncertain. And it always has been. Yeah. Um, it just takes you getting kicked in the ass to really for it to sink in. That's what it took for me because it's like, could I go out and get struck by a lightning? Could I get hit by a car? Could I break my leg? Absolutely. But it was that complete kind of loss of control that really made me realize just like life is just always going to be uncertain and you need to figure out how to cope with that. I wanted to just, as we wrap up, ask you, like, what would you say maybe if you're, if someone, someone who's listening, um, who is thrust into this new uncertain space, or maybe just newly aware of how uncertain life really is, um, what would you, what would you say to them are like maybe your top three things you would suggest focusing on to help with just coping with this, coping with this in general over time? It's all like really simple stuff. And it sounds, I just remember learning some of this stuff and thinking, oh shit, how did I know that? So one of the things I would say is focus on what you know. So for example, you know, I could, I could worry about the future and this, this, and this, and this, but so what do I know? I know what my biopsy result is and it's this. I know I'm following up with my doctor and it's this. And so for me, that was a huge thing with anxiety and fear of the unknown and fear of the future. What was happening is focus on what you know, like stick to the facts. Don't make shit up because yeah. <laughs> I'm really going to run away with the stories, the stories. Yeah. Don't, don't let it go. Another thing I would tell people is ask the questions. I remember feeling so heavy going into a lot of my eye appointments with my doctor wanting to know, um, like, can I get pregnant? If I get pregnant, is my baby at risk of having cancer? Just like, oh, I remember too. Oh, I have this little note in my neck. It's definitely a thing. It's a problem. Like we're got big problems. Ask the questions because turning over a rock and seeing what's under it is so much easier than walking past that rock over and over and over and being like worried about something. My doctor was very generous and kind and good in the way of like, okay, like this is absolutely, this lymph node is not connected, but do you want to have a scan to just shut that down? Yes. Yes, I do. And so, yeah, it was an extra appointment and I did it and an extra trip and I, I'm grateful I did it. I guess the other thing I would just say is that like, it is going to get better. I know that that sounds just like so completely cliched. And if you're in a place where things feel really hard and it feels like it's just not going to get better, it will essentially like whether something's good or bad, it's not going to last forever. So when it's good, really lean into it and appreciate it and make memories with it. And when it's bad, just know that it's just not forever. I love that. Whether it's good or bad, it's not going to last forever. And when it's good, lean into that. And when it's bad, just trust that it will end because everything, everything good or bad ends. So like Mm -hmm. it has an end point. Um, I think that's definitely, definitely some really wise advice. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot really fast. Do you have a favorite song? Or I guess it could be, we could say a favorite song or a favorite book. We're going to change that for this year. Favorite song or a favorite book that you would recommend for someone to listen to, to uplift them or to read because it will change their life. You know what? I'm a really big reader. And before I got diagnosed with cancer, I read this book. It's called Great Side. And it is about cancer. It's by Kim Holden. That book changed my life. I love that book so much. It is, I just love it. So like trigger warning, like it does have to do with cancer, but it's just for a life-changing book, Bright Side. Bright Side as in like I'm looking on the bright side, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's just called Bright Side and it's by Kim Holden. You can get it on Amazon. I've awesome. I've got all of like it's actually a four-part series, so I of course was obsessed with it and read all of it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um 
I feel like, yeah, for those of you who feel like you're in a space that you can read that or that you could make it through something like that and just find the, the perspective maybe from someone else's story, then, um, I will put that in the show notes as well so that we'll have that when we put this interview up on the podcast. Well, seriously, like this has been such a good interview and I'm really grateful, grateful for you for sharing like everything that you did. I feel like anyone who comes to listen to this, whether you are multiple years down in your diagnosis or you're just brand new and you're just like, what do I do? (laughs) This is definitely a story that, that we can find a lot of value in. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I am so appreciative to be here and share and help anyone I can. Do you mind if I share how they can like kind of connect with you if anyone wants to connect with you personally? Okay, so and I'll put this in the show notes as well, but you can find Arielle on Instagram. It's basically like a long underscore and then dot Arielle dot. But if you go to Instagram, you'll be able to find her tagged in a few different posts. So that's the easiest way to find it. It's Um, like underscore, underscore, period, A-R-I-E-L-L-E, period, underscore, underscore. Okay. So it's two underscores and then a period and then her name. So, um, but again, I'll put that, I'll put that link to her profile in the show notes. You guys can go and connect with her if you would like. She's been someone who I feel like, I don't even remember the order of how, how we found each other, but I think I connected to you on my personal page first, maybe, I don't even know, but I feel like I remember seeing your posts even before I knew you had ocular melanoma. And then I was like, wait, she has this too. Like, this is cool. Like we connected on this. It's just like social media can really be such a gift. So um, for those of you who would like to connect with her over there, would love to add her, uh, follow her, find her, whatever. Um, And then, like I said, the Facebook group that we have, the living with ocular melanoma in your twenties, thirties, and forties, that's in the comments below this video. It'll also be in the show notes. Um, anyone who has ocular melanoma, so is a patient and is in their twenties, thirties, and forties, and would like to join that group, we would love to have you. Like you were saying kind of at the beginning, it it can help sometimes to have that specific community of people just in your age range and in your period of life, your phase of life. Because I think that, you know, mentally and emotionally, there, there are some things that we feel uniquely in this age bracket versus, you know, if we're a little further on in life. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences and produced by Agora Media. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.